no ads, no corporate sponsors, no foundation money, just hard-hitting truth-telling radio. Please support this show. Go to truthjihad.com and click on the subscribe at Substack button. Welcome back. This is the second hour of tonight's live broadcast of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Durrett on Revolution.Radio, also rebroadcasting at No Lies Radio and the UNS Review. I also write for Veterans Today, Crescent International, American Free Press, and other outlets. And if you want to find out about that, you can check out my Substack. Go to TruthJihad.com and click on the Subscribe at Substack button. Okay, let's get back to the show here. Uh, moving to that topic that we broached with Jim Fetzer in the previous half hour, what's up with the current research about COVID and vaccine-related issues? It doesn't look to me like the vac- vaccines are doing too well. It looks to me like many of the predictions that I heard from Meryl Nass a while back are um, unfolding very much as she thought they might. She was never a big enthusiast for the vaccines, and the vaccines look like they're not doing as well as promised, and the downside may be worse than expected. Uh, Merrill is a very good source on all of these issues, and the biological warfare aspect of this as well. She's a bio-war scholar as well as the medical doctor, so let's hear what she has to say. Welcome, Merrill Nass. How are you? Hi. How are you, Kevin? I'm great. It's great to have you back. Uh, as I said, uh, your um, discussion of these issues on this show has been prescient. It seems that you've uh, you've got ahead of the curve on a number of these issues. And so uh, am I right in thinking that, you know, when you were saying you were not only not enthusiastic about the vaccines back when they were first broken out, but uh, you said you were actually feeling kind of sick to your stomach when you heard your friends were vaccinated. And now looking at the record of the vaccines, it sort of looks like their efficacy wears off in a matter of months Maybe we get into negative efficacy territory. The uh, uh, harmful side effects look to be much worse than anticipated. Uh, Am I right about that? Yes. I mean, in my opinion, you definitely are. Um, But the federal agencies in this country are hiding a lot of the data. And so if you read what the CDC publishes, you won't become aware of that. But if you read most of the other independent literature, and there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of papers about COVID, you will see that that's the case. And above all, they don't really seem to stop transmission uh, between the Delta variant and the waning efficacy it just seems like, according to one study, there's not really any relationship between how vaccinated a particular jurisdiction is and how much COVID and, and COVID hospitalization and death there is. Uh, if anything, there's a slight uh, downside that is the more vaccinated the jurisdiction, whether it's a nation or a county in the U.S., uh, the worse it's doing. So given that real world data, how can they keep saying that these vaccines are so effective? Uh, they own the mass media. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, maybe the studies that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to compare the sort of the mainstream studies with these other ones, and it looks like the other ones are better. I mean, I mean, the way you would fi- try to figure out if, how much the vaccines are stopping transmission, you do with that that study I just mentioned, which was 
I think published in a letter to a medical journal did, which is just go over the uh, the meta stats for for all of these different jurisdictions and try to figure out how much better the vaccinated uh, jurisdictions are doing, if at all. You would expect if the vaccines are as good as they say that the vaccinated jurisdiction should be doing a lot better. Now, the mainstream media is constantly coming up with stuff like the uh, Biden voting counties are doing a lot better than the Trump voting <laughs> counties. But there it says so. OK, so is that true? And, and if so, how do we reconcile that story with this meta study of the whole world showing that the vaccine vaccinated jurisdictions are not doing better? So um, because this virus jumps around and at times the, st the jurisdictions that were doing the best become those doing the worst. And I'll bring up Vermont, which is mm -hmm. perhaps the most highly vaccinated state. They say 76 percent of Vermont is vaccinated. Um, it's also an old state. And yet it's having a very high rate of covid deaths now, the seven 70 something percent, I think 72 percent of deaths uh, from COVID in Vermont uh, in September were in the vaccinated. Uh, so what happens anyway is because this virus jumps around and because places that had, you know, low numbers of cases in the past have more virus naive people to get the disease when it really comes to them. You can choose your jurisdiction and your time period and prove just about anything as long as you select them correctly. Um, and that's that's the problem. So you're right. There a lot is it, it is true that in the Trump voting jurisdictions, the rates of vaccination are less. Who knew that that people form their opinions about health by how they voted? You know, I never would have guessed that that was the case, but it seems that Americans are a lot simpler than I gave them credit for in the right. past. Well, the mainstream media, of course, is is very strongly uh, devoted to this divide and conquer kind of approach to things, the red versus blue narrative. You would think that the right way to do this kind of study would be to look look at as much, you know, as many jurisdictions across as much as much time as you could, right? Right, exactly. That's what you should be doing. But when you look at these CDC studies that, that claim anything you want them to claim, you know, that unvaccinated people are dying at 20 times the rate as vaccinated or that masks really work or lockdowns work, they carefully choose their jurisdiction and time period. Um, usually, you know, if they're trying to show that something's good, they take a time period where the rates of COVID are just going down naturally. For example, from winter to summer, it last year. And, you know, that, that way they can show benefit. It's anyway, I mean, we're, we're sort of beating a dead horse here. <laughs> I think yeah. that, um, it's clear that the benefit, I, I my reading of the literature indicates that the vaccines cause an increase in COVID cases and an increase in other things like um, recurrence of, of viral infections, such as shingles, for two to three weeks after vaccination. Then, after that period of time, the vaccinations provide effective protection for a while maybe 70, 80 percent, and then dropping down gradually over the next few months. And when you hit about five or six months, 
depending on which vaccine we're talking about, Moderna having the highest efficacy and Johnson & Johnson having the lowest, you can get down to almost nothing. Um, so there was a, a huge VA study where they looked at all the people in the VA system who were vaccinated. Anyway, looked at their rates of getting COVID, and it turned out that uh, up until October of this year, and it turned out that those who had the Johnson & Johnson by October, it was only 13% efficacious. In other words, you had to vaccinate eight people for it to work in one by wow. October. And that's, again, people were vaccinated over a several month period of time. So they didn't all have vaccinations for 10 months or eight months. You know, it was somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a very, as I say, it was almost a million people were in that study using all the VA data. So it's probably, you know, we're, uh, good, good, reliable data. And it came from the federal government. And so uh, more reason for it to be good data. Uh, it does seem like the, the, the federal less telling you something that, that other agencies in the federal government are trying to cover up. You know, it's very interesting that the VA scientists could could come up with this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I've been reading these guys like uh, Alex Berenson and Eugipius who follow some of this stuff, mm -hmm. and, and they've been saying that the U.S. data is pretty bad, that yep. the good data is coming out of places like Israel and the U.K., especially the U.K., and yes. that good data is showing the limitations of vaccines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, but and surprisingly, yeah. this VA data, you know, there it was, giving you, hmm. and now you see the the FDA and the CDC have basically been counting angels on the head of a pin because on the one hand, they're trying to tell you that the efficacy is excellent. But on the other hand, they're trying to come up with justifications for why we need boosters. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. So, you know, suddenly the efficacy had to drop off a cliff because two weeks ago at, you know, at the advisory committee meetings, they couldn't admit that. So they had to say the efficacy was excellent. They're, you know, oh, it's gone down to 85% <laughs> from from 95%. I mean, it was crazy. But, and the, wor the worse it gets, the more hysterical the vaccinate everybody people become. The propaganda gets, get, you know, it's almost a, a perfect inverse relationship there. As, as the, the worse the vaccines are, the more louder the, more the you propaganda need is. Exactly. It, it, well, of course, if they're not working, then there's more cases of COVID. And all these people who thought they stepped up for their two vaccinations and now uh, are feeling naked again, you know, they, they want, you know, damn it, we want, we want a solution. You're going to have to do something, you know, and the more draconian, the better, because they're tired of uh, postponing their life coming on two years. Yeah, what well, people need to understand is is that the head vaccinator, Sir Patrick Va Valence in the UK, the head doctor and vaccinator, told Parliament uh, more than a month ago that it's a pipe dream to think you're going to achieve herd immunity with vaccines. It's not going to happen. They are too leaky. They are not effective enough. You can vaccinate people as many times as you want. It's not, they're not going to do the trick. And what does that mean? That means something that these people who have been hiding in their homes for two years don't want to hear. And that is everybody has to get the disease. 
Right. Now, and, and then the treatment, it's not such a horrendous, horrible disease, but the government has been suppressing early treatment. You know, people don't realize that it doesn't have to be that bad. It can be like a flu. You get over it and then you're good to go. You have immunity and you get on with your life. Mm-hmm. You can put then, the fear aside, but, you know, everything is habitual and people have um, been habituated to fear to cower, you know, to keep that mask on until you get to your table in the restaurant and then you can take it off until you go to the bathroom. What do you think about the efficacy of the immunity, uh, natural immunity versus vaccine immunity? There's been a debate about this. The mainstream hysterically uh, shrieks that the vaccine immunity is much, much, much better. um, But a lot of the data doesn't seem to support that. What's your take? Well, (laughs) Just look at history. I mean, I had measles when I was a kid. I had mumps. I had rubella. Uh, you know, I don't. I never got them again. Uh, you only get them once, and your immune system works for the rest of your life. People were tested who got smallpox vaccinations as infants, and they were tested in their 80s, and they still had evidence of immune memory. For smallpox. Yeah, but is this true for, for respiratory viruses like colds and flu? Um, it depends on the virus. It depends on the situation. So your Im- immunity for colds is often a few years. But for SARS-1, which is really the important one that we're looking at that occurred primarily in China, uh, Singapore, Taiwan, Vietnam, uh, in 2002 and 2003, people who had that infection had evidence 17 years later of immune memory, which is last year. So we certainly would expect from all that. I don't think you should separate respiratory viruses from other viruses. And and measles, by the way, is a respiratory, but you get it by breathing it in. Okay, but but, but the kind of immunity you get from colds and flu is uh, you no, know, probably it's, it's partial immunity. So you kind of you're basically going to no, get a cold or flu almost every every year or two. Right. The, and is no, COVID going to be like that? No, the flu changes. The flu changes. Influenza viruses are constantly mutating. So you would still if you not from the vaccine, the vaccine immunity only lasts a few months in, from flu shots. But if you actually got exposed to the same identical strain of influenza, that you had last year or a couple of years ago, you would be immune. Um, Right. Yeah. So, but now coronavirus mutates too. Now the normal coronavirus, if you get the infection, your your body is going to mount an immune response to all the different immunogenic epitopes. In other words, all the little spots on the virus or pieces of the proteins and other substances that, are caused to be produced by the virus, right? Because the virus hijacks your your own cells to make its products. So there are at least 30 different epitopes that your body is going to be producing an immune response to, but uh, at least 30 proteins and many more epitopes than that, excuse me. And so, but when you get the vaccine, you're making spike protein, uh, whether it's the J&J, DNA vaccine or the two RNA vaccines. And so you're only producing an immune response to that one protein, a very limited number of immune epitopes. So 
if you've gotten the vaccine and there are significant mutations, you would not expect the body to to be able to mount a, a memory immune response to a significantly mutated spike protein. But since if you got the disease, you've made your, your immune response to all different aspects of the virus and its products, you're much, much more likely to maintain that immunity for new variants that occur. New, their variants are mutations. They're just a particular set of mutations that has taken over for a while. You know, the Delta is just about gone. They, they talk about Delta Plus. There's Mu. There's all sorts of these things are constantly mutating, and we should not fear the mutations. Everything, mut- even during a flu season, the the flu virus is mutating. Um, what am I trying to say? Well, well, are these mutations it's a normal no- process? And to to deal, although they're trying to scare us with this whole idea of mutations, the actual idea of mutations should be that natural immunity is going to be so much more effective against any mutations that come up that, you know, we should ignore the, the propaganda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's what I would have thought too. But uh, the, the question arises about the mutations um, and whether uh, the uh, change in the virus will be for the better or for the worse. And there's a discussion, you know, Vandenbosch and people like that, I think Luc Montagnier as well, have been concerned that with uh, these vaccines, they could actually be helping select for more virulent variants, whereas uh, in a situation where you didn't have any vaccination, masking, distancing or anything like that, you would actually have the uh, the variants that would develop and become endemic would be less virulent because, you know, the, the disease wants to spread. And so they right. will they'll try to infect you in such a way so that you don't feel too bad. So you'll go out in the world and spread it. Right. And if, if it hits you so hard that you just fall in bed, you're not going to spread it to so many people. So if if you're not trying to, uh, you know, to vaccinate and distance and mask everybody, then it, it'll tend to evolve to become less virulent, whereas you put up all these barriers and it might have to get more virulent to get past the barriers. And you could end up with a Merrick syndrome where, you know, the Merrick's disease and chickens where you vaccinate them or they die. Um, let's, uh, what, what do you think about that whole discussion? Where is that heading? Well, I tend to be, <laughs> I'm a bit of a crank. Um, I, I tend to have my own thoughts. So my thought is that we have a lot of theories and we hope we should have had better data by now to figure out which of these theories are going to predict the future, but we don't because the federal agencies and other countries don't, do not share the data that would be most useful. Um, there is some evidence of this thing called original antigenic sin in which by vaccinating people, you get, you give them a strong immune response to the one protein that you've got, but you weaken their response to all the other. So someone who's already had it and may have had an immune response, that immune response could be weakened by a shot. Um, There there are many things that could happen. Usually, I'm going to go into that in a second about what might happen. Usually, as you said, a, a, a virus mutates and becomes less and less virulent over time. And, and bacteria often do often do that too. So um, 
scarlet fever, you know, was a deadly disease a century ago, and now it's nothing. It's like a cold. But what, let me think what I was going to say. Oh, yes. What we have to remember is that this virus came from a laboratory. And the response to the coordinated, worldwide coordinated response to it rather quickly after the virus was identified um, suggests that the virus may have been deliberately released. And if that is the case, we certainly know that Fauci went to great efforts to cover up its lab origin and to create fake literature showing that it supposedly came from, you know, nature. Um, so if it was, if it did come from, a, was created in the lab and was leaked deliberately, anything could happen in the future. We can't predict what's going to happen. I mean, there are a few things we can do. We could add teeth to the Biological Weapons Convention and, and try to start inspecting biological defense labs around the world and seeing what they've got and, uh, you know, trying to stop the continued development and the potential risk of, of biological warfare in the future. But right now, we have no treaty with teeth. We have no way to prevent this from happening again. And we don't know even whether these variants have been deliberately released. We just don't know. Yeah. What do you think is the most plausible scenario for the way COVID was released? I mean, personally, it looks to me like the, the best uh, evidentiary case is the one that Ron Unz has written up in his ebook, uh, arguing that uh, neocons around people like uh, Pompeo and, and Bolton got together, basically, and, and it was a very limited sort of need-to-know basis thing, uh, ended up launching an intended bioattack on China, following up on the attacks on their chicken and pork supplies in the previous years. Then in, in 2020, they went after China with us at the height of the trade wars against China, and it spun out of control, presumably unintentionally. So that's, that's Ron's hypothesis, and he, he comes up with a lot of surprisingly strong evidence for it. Um, others have argued that there may be a Malthusian plot even deeper than that. Um, yeah. what, what do you think? Um, I don't know about the beginning of this, but I think that at this point in time, it seems like the U.S. goals seem to be aligned with the Chinese goals. And we seem to be trying to imitate what the Chinese are doing, such as this, you know, the vaccine passport um, as a way to a social credit score and easy, easier surveillance of all the citizens and enforced compliance. Um, Isn't that like saying that the, you know, the Nazi Germany is locking up all its workers in, you know, in, in factories to make war munitions and the Soviet Union is locking all its workers in factories to make war munitions. And the U S is locking, you know, moving its blacks up North and locking them in factories uh, to make war munitions so they all they're all on the same side? Well, maybe not. Well, I mean there's that, you know, these uh videos, these YouTube videos that people are putting together that are excellent, I think, that show that basically BlackRock and State Street and uh what's the other one starts with a V, Vanguard, you know, basically own everything. And so the, the concept of one country against another uh, yeah, they, see, they don't know China. China. China has public banking, and that's what they don't like. 
Perhaps so. Perhaps you you may well be right. Maybe they own everything else, and and they yeah, don't. Own. That, that's why they're at war with Russia, China, and Iran. And they, you know, Iran and China are the two. In fact, Iran is the one they own the least, and China is second least, and Russia third least. And those three countries now have their own bloc. And so I think I think we're moving into a kind of a pre World War Three scenario, frankly. Hope I'm wrong. Well, how do you how do you fight World War Three? I mean, what uh, are you? It, through largely, you know, up until it spins out of control, you would fight it through deniable means. You know, fourth generation warfare uh, includes everything from information warfare, co covert biological warfare, which, of course, you know all about, uh, and uh, the economic warfare, um, of course, strategic threats, you know, trying to sort of soon sue your opponent into, you know, losing before any shots have been fired. Uh, I just talked in the first hour with Dave Lindorf about his his article about the U.S. moving to an even stronger first strike posture by way of this uh, 1.7 trillion dollar F-35A Lightning fighter program, these they're retrofitting all of these uh, stealth so-called fighters to carry nuclear weapons that can be dialed right. up to several Hiroshima's or down to much smaller than that, and then they're going to have these planes stationed right kind of right next to Russia and China. And uh, in, in a you know the, it, the doctrine is is all first strike. The U.S. has been planning to yes. launch a nuclear first strike against its enemies, and currently that's Russia, China, and Iran. Uh, you know, ever since World War II. Uh, so if if things get out of control, that's what they do. But what they would rather do is put so many F-35 and, and nuclear weapons in in you know the right places on the chessboard that they can basically force china to open up and privatize its public bank force russia to open up and let the uh western banksters and and corporations move in and loot them and take over their resources and that's what it's really about i think so the thing uh, my only problem uh, i might have others with your scenario is that any americans who thought they could confine this virus to china you know were optimistic in the extreme. I mean, why release it in Wuhan when there's, you know, hundreds or thousands of international flights leaving Wuhan every day? Yeah, that's well, Ron, of course, thinks that they may have been arrogant in imagining that you know, the Western public health uh, infrastructure is so advanced that, you know, we can get away with this just like SARS and mirrors and so on didn't mm -hmm. escape China. And so, but, but there's a whole history of, as you know, <laughs> biowar that did spill mm -hmm. over, that, that, you know, U.S. crops and livestock were decimated by biowar agents that were developed here and deployed against uh, Russians and Eastern Europeans and Cubans and things like that. But they also, you know, the wheat rust thing and, and so on. And so these people don't seem to be uh, as careful as they should be, let's say. <laughs> I think you're probably right about that. Um they it that's a possibility and certainly uh what's dr peter bregan and his wife have pointed out that china stopped internal flights from wuhan but allowed international flights to proceed i don't know if that's true that, that's but, passive aggression isn't it well if they think they've been attacked yeah i mean that you know well the u.s thought we did okay with the first sars and who knows? Nobody knows if the first SARS was a biological weapon. You know, it was the first time there was a human coronavirus that was deadly. It right. may have been a biological weapon. It may have been a natural occurrence. Who knows? Yeah. But it seems like they had, the, at least it's claimed, I've not looked into this. It's claimed that, you know, there was good evidence that there were similar viruses 
in bats, whereas nobody has come up with a similar enough virus in a bat this time around. Yeah, very interesting point. And, you know, the other thing about these scenarios is that the bioweapons program may not be fully under good centralized command and control. Uh, the nuclear weapons program, of course, hasn't always been either, as Daniel Ellsberg famously wrote about in in his uh, book, the was it the Doomsday Machine, I think it's called, mm-hmm. where he, you know, when he was in in the Rand Corporation in the fifties, his job was to uh, check out any problems in nuclear command and control, and they everybody had to tell him everything. So he traveled around uh, and discovered that the communication system for command and control was totally screwed up, and they had delegated the ability to launch nuclear weapons way down the command chain, you know, not quite to the privates in the foxholes, but practically. Uh, and, and so the whole thing was just completely out of control. And, and, and so he, hopefully, you know, supposedly they may have fixed that up a little bit, patched it up by the 60s and 70s. But with the bioweapons stuff, as you know, these happen to be sort of covert operations because the whole thing was you know, bioweapons have been thrown into the CIA covert ops bag since 1950. And so mm-hmm. these various attacks have probably not been centrally ordered by the president. Uh, so there are a possibility of rogue actors like, you know, maybe on a need to know basis. And, you know, they don't want the president to know. Right. It, it needs to be mm-hmm. deniable. Uh, right. And, and right. these crazy neocons who are all set for war with China, it seems to me that this is very much the sort of thing you would expect them to do. Well, I think that's possible. But again, the worldwide coordination of the response would suggest otherwise. Yeah, it's like they were some, somebody was ready for it. So maybe, you know, yeah. you can sort of a imagine it. People were ready for it. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people must have been put in place, you know, as as prime ministers, you know, head of the EU, head of the WHO, head of the UN, who would go along. Mm-hmm. It reminds me a little bit of that Aaron Rousseau interview with uh, that mm-hmm. uh, Rockefeller family member where Aaron Rousseau talked about how a few years, I think, before 9-11, his friend, I think Jay Rockefeller, said, there's going to be an event. And he described 9-11. You know, and and mm-hmm. this event is going to allow us to do this and do that. And, and, you know, Aaron Rousseau was kind of horrified and even more horrified when it actually happened. And with these various drills and so on, it sort of looks like people at the top of the sort of bankster food chain and then their associated hangers on. They seem to have known that, you know, COVID-19 was coming. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So uh, and it, you know, if, if it makes you wonder, you know, how <laughs> how these things actually operate at that level. So here we are trying to figure it out and trying to figure out how to how to protect ourselves against it. Uh, and, you know, we haven't yet talked about the the harmful side effects of vaccines. When I talked to you last, it was a while back. I remember it might have been our most recent interview or maybe it was two interviews back where you said you feel kind of sick to your stomach when you hear your friends and family members have gotten vaccinated because you're concerned about the possibility that this could turn out to be a lot worse than uh, expected. And and now it, it kind of looks like it is worse than yeah. expected. How much worse? I'm not sure. Uh, what's your take on that at this point? Well, my take is that it's it's quite bad that the vaccines, as I said before, barely work. And and may have, as you said, negative efficacy after a while. But the the if they were 
reasonably safe, you could just say, you know, so what? We tried. But the problem is that the, the way you're supposed to test vaccines is you're actually supposed to look for side effects, you know, and notify people what they are, you know, warn them. They ha I mean, really, the law requires for EUA products, emergency use authorized products to be used. You have to tell the person who's getting it what the side effects are, the risks and benefits. The law is very clear. You have to tell them risks and benefits. And so what's happened is we've, we, there are some extraordinary number of side, rate of side effects. So the, if you look at the VAERS, which is the volunteer, it's supposed to be a voluntary reporting system, but there is mandatory reporting by doctors and by industry. So if a manufacturer often is informed about problems and they must report to this system as well as directly to, to others at FDA. And so, but about 20 or 30% of the reports are from the public. And the number of reports has been one or two orders of magnitude higher than for any other vaccine. And you think, well, more people have gotten COVID vaccine, but actually, you know, there's over 150 million Americans get the flu vaccine every year. So it's only one shot versus usually two for these vaccines. But still, the, the number of deaths, so there's 18,000 deaths reported to this VAERS system. And people say, well, they're not all from the United States. So may, let's say 10,000 are from the United States. That is still more than the number of deaths reported for every vaccine over the last 30 years. So if you add up every death ever reported to the VAERS system for 30 years, it's, it's not 10,000. It's less than the deaths that have been reported following COVID vaccinations. And 50% of the deaths that are reported being involved with COVID vaccinations occur within 48 hours of a vaccination. And 80% occurred within the first two weeks. So the, certainly there's a very strong temporal relationship. Then if you look at the side effects, you're also seeing some enormous number of side effects have been reported. So um, over 800,000, you know, maybe 900,000. It might even be a million now, side effects. That's a lot of side effects for, you know, I don't know how many Americans, 190 million Americans maybe that have been vaccinated, 180. Um, so approximately, you know, more than a percent or a percent, am I wrong? Wait a minute, half a percent. So one in 200 people that is, or maybe more if there are Europeans or somebody else is reporting, but it looks like maybe one in 200, one in 300 people who receive this vaccine have an injury that they are concerned, they or their doctor or the manufacturer is sufficiently concerned about to go to the trouble, you know, spending a lot of time making a report to the FDA. And it's not, it used to be fairly simple to make these reports, but they've complicated the process um, and uh, the, the system will throw you off if you take too long. And, and anyway, there's a, just an extremely high rate of reporting. And then what we, what the FDA and CDC have tried to do is to, in, in terms of getting the vaccine approved for children, 
is to pretend that there's only one side effect, which is myocarditis. They weren't able to cover up myocarditis because the military was seeing a lot of cases in the U.S. and Israel. Israel was reporting in their newspapers high rates of myocarditis at that time, an estimated 25 times higher than baseline after getting the shot in young men. And now we see, actually, if you compare the rate of myocarditis that gets reported to VAERS in young men, men say 12 to, to 30, you compare that rate with the rate in men over 65 that are reporting, it's 100 times higher. So there's a lot of myocarditis. And you'll see, there's again, there's videos on YouTube of one athlete after another collapsing in the middle of a soccer game or a rugby game on the field and going into cardiac arrest um, because myocarditis can do that. And if you are involved with extreme exercise, it's more likely. So in fact, the, the medical care of myocarditis involves cessation of exercise. Um, what Now again, CDC in particular has tried to minimize the severity of these cases says, you know, most of them are perfectly fine, you know, nobody's dying. But that's not true because, first of all, there are death reports of teenagers from myocarditis in VAERS based on autopsies. And um, at three months, only 75% of the children who develop myocarditis that CDC has evaluated, only 75% are healed and 25% are not. This, this myocarditis can cause scarring, can cause reduced cardiac pump function, can cause arrhythmias, can cause sudden death, and it doesn't, the, the scars never go away. So you're probably always at higher risk. And this doesn't sound like something a young athlete would want. I mean, maybe Aaron Rodgers was uh, right in uh, saying it's his body, his choice, and maybe he's making well, exactly. a choice. This is the worst thing in the world for a young athlete. And they're, um, you know, leaders of, of hockey in Canada have told kids, do not get this vaccine because it's affected so many of the hockey children. And in, I don't know whether it was Belgium or Holland, they had cycling clubs saying, do not get the vaccine. Or in Israel, uh, they they were considering telling people, no exercise for a week after vaccination. Most cases show up in the first week. So if you say no exercise for everybody, by a, by the time a week has gone by, you'll have 95% of your cases. And then you could just restrict, you know, activity, restrict um, sports to that 90, those people. And, you, you know, let the others go back to activity. So that was a consideration. It's certainly... It, it occurs at a high rate, whether it's one in a thousand, one in five thousand, you know, it's not clear. But it's at least at, at a minimum one in five thousand of young males. Now, let me tell you a story about smallpox vaccine. The military thought it was about one in fifty. So smallpox vaccine also causes myocarditis, especially in young people. So the military was seeing cases. And so a study was done in over a thousand military recruits who were getting smallpox vaccine. It was published in 2015. And, and they just, they drew blood before and after vaccination on these young men, a few women, and found that 
if you actually looked, if you looked prospectively, if you asked everybody, are you having chest pain? Are you having short of breath? Are, you know, are you having symptoms of myocarditis, arrhythmias, et cetera? And, and blood evidence by a, a rise in the troponin level, which is a cardiac enzyme released when these heart cells die, heart muscle dies. Um, they found one in 220 soldiers who received the smallpox vaccine developed a case of myocarditis, a clinical case. Wow. But Have they done that kind of study with uh, the, uh, the COVID vaccines? No, they don't want to. That, that would be a disaster because it would prove how frequently this occurs, and that would be the end of the program. So anyway, um, in the military, though, they also looked at people who didn't have symptoms of myocarditis but had elevated levels of cardiac enzymes, indicating increased heart muscle damage. One in 30 soldiers wow. who were vaccinated had that. You Chemical. know, you start doing cost-benefit analysis or risk-benefit analysis analyses for these younger age groups, these young athletes. I, I don't see how it could come out to anything other than, you know, it's a bad choice to get to it's vaccinate. It's a disaster. Yeah, it's a disaster because almost no kids die of COVID. Almost no kids get serious cases of COVID, particularly in this last group that for whom this vaccine was just authorized last week. Um, they have the lowest death rate of any age group. And for example, in the two and CDC doesn't even now try to fool you and say these are deaths due to COVID. They actually say these are deaths with COVID on their website. There's only been eight children aged six in the last two years that have died with COVID. <laughs> eight, you know, I mean, there's been 94 children in two years that CDC says have died with COVID, 94 children. And for that, and, and these kids probably, the vast majority, you know, had underlying severe medical conditions. And some of them died from other things and happened to be diagnosed with COVID while they were in the hospital. Um, but for these, at the most 94 children, we're gonna vaccinate 28 million. Um, yeah, so you're you're actually part of that uh, uh, children's health defense lawsuit about this. Uh, where is that at now? Children's health defense has a variety of different lawsuits, sort of percolating through the courts. Um, we asked for an injunction um, against. Well, we've asked for several injunctions, and the way those cases work, the judges have thrown out the request for an injunction, but then the case proceeds. They haven't thrown it out, you know, on some technical issue. So there will, it will hopefully be heard on the merits. But we've had cases uh, regarding mandates in colleges. We, we have um, a couple of those going forward, one in Nevada, one in New Jersey. Um, we are working on a case supporting Dr. Paul Marek, who is a fabulous um, intensive care physician. He was head of the department at East Virginia Medical School. Um, he is a maverick. He pioneered the use of intravenous vitamin C for sepsis, which dramatically reduces deaths. Um, 
and he's he's just been a a great researcher and writer and teacher in the whole field of intensive care medicine. And he's pioneered a lot of the FLCCC treatments for people with severe COVID. Well, his, believe it or not, his um, hospital system forbade him for, from using any of the drugs that work on COVID. No vitamin C, no ivermectin, no hydroxychloroquine, no fluvoxamine, you know, no this, no that. And uh, so he is suing his um, hospital. It's, uh, there, are, there are other cases in different, um, but nothing, nothing super exciting is going on with our cases right now. Although you may recall that last, at the end of last week, a court um, issued an injunction for a case brought by Louisiana and several other states regarding the um, mandate for companies that employed over 100 workers. And the court asked the federal government to issue its response by Monday. And today they did. And today the court said, no go, we don't accept the government response and we'll continue with the injunction while the case proceeds. So people who work in private companies, well, I I mean, I believe all of the mandates are illegal because the only vaccine you can get is experimental. And, and that should be clear. But in addition, you now have a court, an important court saying uh, that these corporations with more than 100 people cannot mandate. What do you think about the legality of the mandates where they don't force you to take the vaccine, but they make you get tested more often and sometimes go through these draconian and humiliating kinds of regimes. Uh, Aaron Rodgers, of course, described that uh, with the NFL. And uh, my, uh, I'm, uh, I've gotten to know uh, the father of Leo Chanel, who's another big football star here in Wisconsin. I wrote an article about Aaron Rodgers and, and Leo Chanel. And likewise, with the college football program, uh, there are people like Leo who don't want these experimental vaccines and are forced to get uh, a kind of an accelerated testing regimen uh, as opposed to the people who are vaccinated. So is, is, is there a a legal grounds for challenging that uh, or can they get away with their vaccine mandate just by saying, well, we're letting, you don't have to get vaccinated. All you have to do is come in every morning at 5 AM for your COVID test and we'll ram a Q-tip up your nose. Uh, I'm going to tell you, something I haven't said anywhere else yet, but I guess it's time, which is that the um, the tests, almost every test, I think there's one actually approved test in the United States and there's over 300 that are authorized. So the tests for COVID are EUAs as well. Ah, okay. That means they legally could not be mandated either. Great. I'm glad to hear that because I, I didn't know that. I actually had been talking to some folks who are uh, contemplating some legal action along those lines. And I gave the uh, bad sort of first take advice saying, well, you know, the government or the authorities are going to argue that these tests are a public health measure. They're not an experiment. Yes, the vaccines are experimental, but no, the tests are just a public health testing, blah, blah, blah. But it sounds like maybe uh, there's an argument that they're experimental, too. So how, how do you how do you make that argument? 
Well, I haven't talked to this about a lawyer with a lawyer yet, so I'm not sure. But I think FDA has probably kept all these tests as EUAs rather than licensing them so that it doesn't have any responsibility for, you know, whether the results are good or bad, whether one has more false positives or false negative. You know, it, no, it's just an experiment. So if, so if it doesn't well, work, it's, it's more than an experiment because, <laughs> I mean, they're experimental. Right. But why are there so many? Why are there hundreds of these tests being used in the United States? Why has FDA authorized several hundred different tests rather than standardizing the testing? Does that make sense to yeah, use this pandemic? Yeah, I, I don't understand that at all. I mean, I understand that they say that they had a problem early on with Chinese right. companies you know, selling dicey tests over the Internet. But uh, you would think there would be more standardization and that it wouldn't all. You say you're saying all of these tests are ex still experimental. I think there's one that they've licensed, and I think it is the one that tests for flu as well as um, COVID. But don't don't quote me yet. I'll have to look that up. So, but the others are experiment. So why is FDA just leaving us in this wild west of testing? You know, it has there has to be a reason for it. I think it's so that. Perhaps different te tests can be – federal government has bought most of them. You know, we've spent tens of billions of dollars on these things. So maybe they want to roll out the, the ones with the high false positives at some point and then roll out the ones with the high false negatives at another point. Who knows? But um, almost all the tests, virtually all the tests that are available to people are going to be EUA tests and um, – that they can be challenged in the courts in terms of being mandated. Yeah, because it so in terms of uh, U.S. law, does the U.S. law follow the Nuremberg Code uh, banning uh, forced uh, experimentation? No, no that, that's an interesting question. I'll tell you what I know. So the, the Nuremberg Code was created by American jurists. And in fact, it was sort of faked. They They claimed it was based on American Medical Association ethical standards, but they sort of created these standards so they could use them at the Nuremberg trials. Um, they have they are not adopted directly into U.S. law, but there have been a number of cases in which the American judges have cited Nuremberg in their decisions. So Nuremberg is kind of built into case law. And it has so it has meaning, um, but it, it there is no one U.S. law that enshrines what Nuremberg represents. So that would be a complex legal argument then. No, because we have other laws. We, I oh. mean, we, there there are we have laws and standards such less that we, we are about bodily autonomy or privacy and so in, and informed consent you know again in case law and I, I can't cite you the all the informed consent law because I've had I have had trouble looking it up and understanding it but there are various laws and case law that um, do require people to have informed consent for procedures and 
even on the National Library of Medicine website, which is part of the NIH, um, it said that you need informed consent for vaccines. That doesn't mean you have to sign a form as you would before you have a surgical procedure, but it means that doctors are expected to, to give you an opportunity to ask questions and they are expected to tell you something about the benefits and risks of a vaccine. Um, so there's certainly strong legal arguments that can be made. The problem is, is that the legal milieu since COVID began has been turned upside down and judges uh, are in the main not doing what you would expect and throwing out cases. And that has been the case in Europe also, throwing out cases where the lawyers thought they had a very good case and the judge comes up with some phony technicality and throws it out. That's That's been happening a lot. That doesn't surprise me that much. We we had the same experience in in the 9/11 Truth Movement trying to challenge things in court. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we'll see, you know. But this, but the thing is now that U.S. Attorney Generals are getting into the act, and so they have a lot more heft than ordinary citizens do in bringing cases. And there's now 26 states that are bringing uh, cases against these federal mandates. Wow. So there is a rebellion brewing not only uh, in the streets, uh, but also in the courts. So we only have a minute or two left. Uh, where where could people go? I know we can go to your anthrax vaccine blog. Uh, other good sources of information, the Children's Health Defense website. And is there anything else you recommend? Yeah. So... Everybody's interested in treatment. The FLCCC website updates frequently on treatment, prophylactic regimens, long COVID, etc. I just posted three days ago. I also have a MerylNassMD.com blog. So I posted three days ago on over-the-counter remedies for COVID. Um the Children's Health Defense is, has an enormous amount of stuff. The website is not as easy to navigate as we would like. Um, it's, we're working on it. Bobby Kennedy is in Europe right now. He just uh, may, had a talk at some several talks in Bern today. He's going to Milan tomorrow. There's big demonstrations in Europe, which the U.S. press mainly doesn't cover. Um, so what else should I tell you? Uh, so so that, that, that website was FLCCC is the uh, treatment website? Yes, that's that's probably that's the best website, I think, for treatment. Okay. Um, it's made up by these intensive care doctors. So it's stronger on the serious cases, um, maybe less strong on the pre-hospital cases, but still quite good. And then there's an amazing website that... Um, anonymous people have put together we may have discussed it earlier um c19study.com that's right c19study.com yeah um and it has uh collected and curated every single paper and we will put that in the radio blog that people can find by way of bruceyhod.com. Click on the radio schedule link and get there. Thank you so much, Meryl Mass. It's great talking to you. Very uh, information, great stuff. Very much appreciated. Bruce Scott, yeah.